0: Chapter 37 of The Life and Adventure of James P. Beckworth by Thomas D. Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Olman. Chapter 37. Mistakes regarding the character of the Indian. Extent of the Western tribes. Their character. How a war against them should be conducted. Reflections. Closing address to the indian heroine as an american citizen a friend of my race and a sincere lover of my country and also as one well acquainted with the indian character i feel that i cannot properly conclude the record of my eventual life without saying something for the red man it should be remembered when judging of their acts that they consider the country they inhabit as the gift of the great spirit and they resent in their hearts the invasion of the immigrant just as much as any civilized portion people would if another nation without permission should cross their territory it must also be understood that the indians believe the buffalo to be theirs by inheritance not as game but in the light of ownership given to them by providence for their support and comfort and that when an immigrant shoots a buffalo the indian looks upon it exactly as the destruction by a stranger of so much private property with these ideas clearly in mind of the reader it can be understood why the indian in destroying a cow belonging to white people or stealing a horse considers himself as merely retaliating for injuries received repaying himself in fact for what he has lost For this act on the part of the Red Man, the United States troops are often turned indiscriminately upon his race. The innocent generally suffer, and those who have raised the storm cannot understand of what crime they can be guilty. But if the government is determined to make war upon the Western tribes, let it be done intelligently and so effectually that mercy will temper justice. To attempt to chastise the Indians with United States troops is simply ridiculous. The expense of such campaigns is only surpassed by the inefficiency. The Indians live on horseback, and they can steal and drive off the government horses faster than they can bring them together. The Indians having no stationary villages they can travel faster, even with the encumbrances of their lodges, women and children subsisting themselves on buffalo slain on the way than any force, however richly appointed, the country could send against them. An army must tire out in such a chase before summer is gone, while the Indians will constantly harass it with their sharpshooters, and should several powerful tribes unite, not an unusual occurrence, many thousand men will make no impression. It should also be recollected by our officers sent to fight in the Rocky Mountains, that the Indians have a mode of telegraphing by the aid of robes and mirrors, and thus, by having their spies stationed at convenient distances, they convey intelligence of the movements of their enemies at great distances and in very few minutes, thus informing villagers whether it would be best to retreat or not. Some tribes telegraph by fire at night and by smoke in the daytime. An officer might hear of a band of warriors encamped at a certain place. He immediately makes a forced march, and when his troops arrive at their destination, these same warriors may be many miles in his rear and camped on his trail. A village of three hundred lodges of crows or Cheyennes could, within thirty minutes after receiving an order to move, have all their lodges struck, the poles attached to the horses, and their men, women, and children going at full speed, and could thus outstrip the breast dragoons sent in their pursuit. I have seen enough of Indian treaties and annuities to satisfy me that their effects for good are worse than fruitless. The idea formed by the indians is that the annuities are sent to them by the great white chief because he is afraid of them and wishes to purchase their friendship. There are some of the tribes, a very few, who would keep a treaty sacred, but the majority would not be bound by one for they cannot understand their nature. When caught at a disadvantage and reduced to enter into a compact, they would agree to any proposals that were offered. But when the controlling power is withdrawn, and they can repeat their depredations with apparent impunity, no moral obligation would restrain them, and the treaty that was negotiated at so much cost to the country proves a mere delusion. The officer, having a charge of an expedition against the Indians, should rightly understand which band of a tribe he is commissioned to punish the Sioux, for instance which a few years ago could raise thirty thousand warriors are divided into many bands which at times are hundreds of miles apart one band of that tribe may commit a depredation on the emigrant road and the other bands not even have heard of it they do not hold themselves amenable for the misdeeds of another body totally distinct from them in social relations and to inflict chastisement upon them in such a case would be a manifest injustice but in a case of extreme danger all these bands coalesce other tribes have the same divisions into distinct bands many are hence led into the belief that each band is a tribe The Siouxes range over a territory upward of a thousand miles in extent from north to south, and their country embraces some of the most beautiful spots in the world, as well for natural scenery as for extreme productiveness of soil. The crows have but one band proper. Although they are generally divided into two villages as being a more convenient arrangement, to afford pasture for their immense herd of horses and also to hunt the buffalo. But these two villages are seldom more than 300 miles apart, generally much nearer. They come together at least once a year and have frequent accidental coalitions in the course of their wanderings. They speak the Grovan language from which nation they are an offshoot. The Pawnees are probably the most degraded in point of morals of all the Western tribes. They are held in such contempt by the other tribes that none will make treaties with them. They are a populous nation and are inveterate against the whites, killing them wherever met. A treaty concluded with that nation at night would be violated the next morning. Those who engage in warfare with the Western Indians will remember that they take no prisoners except women and children. It is generally believed that the Sioux never killed white men, but this is a mistake. They have always killed them. I have seen white men's scalps in their hands, many still fresh, hanging in the smoke of their lodges. The Western Indians have no hummocks or everglades to fight among but they have their boundless prairies to weary an army in and the fastnesses of the rocky mountains to retreat to should a majority of these powerful nations coalesce in defense against one common enemy it would be the worst indian war the most costly in blood and treasure that the national government has ever entered into coalition tribes could bring two hundred and fifty thousand warriors against any hostile force and i know i am greatly within the limits of truth in assigning that number to them if it is the policy of the government to utterly exterminate the indian race the most expeditious manner of effecting this ought to be the one adopted the introduction of whiskey among the red men under the connivance of government agents leads to the demoralization and consequent extermination by more powerful races of thousands of indians annually still this infernal agent is not effectual the indians diminish in numbers but with comparative slowness the most direct and speedy mode of clearing the land of them would be by the simple means of starvation by depriving them of their hereditary sustenance The buffalo. To effect this, send an army of hunters among them to root out and destroy, in every possible manner, the animal in question. They can shoot them, poison them, dig pitfalls for them, and resort to numberless other contrivances to efface the devoted animals, which serves, it would seem, by the wealth of his carcass, to preserve the Indians and thus impede the expanding development. Of civilization to fight the indians vant amiss, the government could employ no such effectual means as to take into its service five hundred mountaineers for the space of one year, and any one tribe of indians that they should fall afoul of could never survive the contest. Such men employed for that purpose would have no encumbrances from super- perilous baggage to impede them in a pursuit or a retreat over their illimitable plains the mode of life of a mountaineer just fits him for an indian fighter and if he has to submit to privation and put up with an empty commiserate he has the means of support always at hand he is so much an indian from habit that he can fight them in their own way if they steal his horse he can steal theirs in return, if they snatch a hasty repose in the open air, it is all he asks for himself and his health and spirits are fortified with such regimen. It is only by men possessing the qualities of the white hunter combined with the Indian habits that the Indians can be effectual and economically conquered. I have now presented a plain, unvarnished statement of the most noteworthy occurrences of my life, and in so doing, I have necessarily led the reader through a variety of savage scenes at which his heart must sicken. The narrative, however, is not without its use. The restless, useful mind that wearies with the monotony of peaceful everyday existence and aspires after a career of wild adventure and thrilling romance, will find, by my experience, that such a life is by no means one of comfort and that the excitement which it affords is very dearly purchased by the opportunities lost of gaining far more profitable wisdom. Where one man would be spared, as I have been, to pass through the perils of fasting the encounters with the savage and the fury of the wild beasts and still preserve his life and attain an age of near threescore it is not too much to say that five hundred would perish with not a single love one near to catch his last whispered accent would die in the wilderness either in solitude or with the fiendish savage shrieking in revolting triumph in his ears i now close the chapter of my eventful life i feel the time is pressing and the reminiscence of the past stripped of all that was unpleasant comes crowding upon me my heart turns naturally to my adopted people i think of my son who is the chief i think of his mother who went unharmed through the medicine lodge i think of bar the brave heroine i see her tearful watching my departure from the banks of the Yellowstone. her nation expects my return that i may be buried with my supposed fathers but none look so eagerly for the great warrior as Pineleaf, the indian heroine i've seen her in her youthful years her heart was light and free her black eyes never dimmed with tears so happy then was she when warriors from the fight returned and halted for display the trophies that the victors won she was first to bring away i've seen her kiss her brother's cheek when he was called to go the lurking enemy to seek or chase the buffalo she loved him with her sister's love he was the only son and finally prized him far above the warrior's heart she won. I've seen her in her morning hours that brother had been slain. Her head that off was decked with flowers now shed its crimson rain. Her bleeding head and bleeding hand, her crimson clotted hair, her brothers in the spirit land and hence her keen despair. I've heard her make a solemn vow. A warrior I will be until a hundred foes shall bow and yield their scalps to me. I will revenge my brother's death. I swear it on my life, or never, while I draw a breath, will I become a wife. I've seen her on her foaming steed with battle-axe at hand, pursuing at her utmost speed the Blackfoot and the Cheyenne. I've seen her weld her polished lance a hundred times and more, when charging fierce in the advance amid the battle's roar i've seen her with her scalping knife spring on the fallen foe and ere he was yet void of life make sure to count her coup i've seen her at full speed again oft draw her trusty bow across her arrow take good aim and lay a warrior low i've heard her say i'll take my shield my battle axe and bow and follow you through glen or field where'er you dare to go i rush amid the blood and strife where any warrior leads pineleaf would choose to lose her life amid such daring deeds i've heard her say the spirit land is where my thoughts incline where i can grasp my brother's hand extended now for mine there's nothing now in this wide world No ties that bid me stay, but a broken-hearted Indian girl. I weep both night and day. He tells me in my midnight dreams I must revenge his fall. Then comes where flowers and cooling streams surround their spirits all. He tells me that the hunting ground so far away on high is filled with warriors all around who nimbly here did die he says that all is joy and mirth where the great spirit lives and joy that's never known on earth he constantly receives no brother to revenge his wrongs the war path is my road a few more days i'll sing his songs then high to his abode i've heard her say i'll be your bride you waited long i know a hundred foes by me have died by my own hand laid low tis for my nation's good i wed for i would still be free until i slumber with the dead but i will marry thee and when i left the heroine a tear stood in her eye at last i held her hand in mine and whispered good-bye oh will you soon return again the heroine did say yes When the green grass decks the plain, I said and came away. The End End of Chapter 37 Recording by Gary Ullman, my village blogger, West Palm Beach, Florida End of The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth by Thomas D. Bonner